Well, if you do have a Bible with you, please do open it back up to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We've made it. Here we are, the final, the final uh, of our series in this book. Last week, we, um, we finished with these words, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 8. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. We've heard that again and again in this book, haven't we? It's become a refrain that I think we're probably pretty used to. But as we come to a close, just want to think again. We do not, we all of us desperately do not want that to be the case, do we? We do not want it to be the case that all is vanity. Instead, we want to be able to say something almost of the opposite of what the preacher is saying. Everything is purposeful. Everything in my life, it's meaningful. And strangely enough, given that persistent refrain of vanity that we've heard right throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, I think that is where this book ultimately ends up, here in these final five verses that we're going to look at this evening. The book finishes by saying, it just doesn't have to be the case for you and for your life that all is vanity. No, instead, you can find real and true purpose and direction in your life. And ultimately, all can be meaningful for you. If you've uh, been with us since early January when we began this series, it has been quite the roller coaster journey, hasn't it? As the preacher within the book has taken this long, hard, Paddington-like stare at the realities of life. And he's not left anything out, has he? He's gone to the depths. And he's tried to find answers to it all. As we've, taken, as we've been taken on this journey, we've considered so much We've considered that there really is nothing new under the sun. We've seen the preacher seek but fail to find gain in this life through worldly wisdom, pleasure, money. We've looked at the reality that there is so much oppression and injustice here on earth. We've seen repeatedly, haven't we, that that seemingly horrible truth that death is coming to us all. And it's going to leave us with nothing. And we've seen throughout too that we just do not seem to be able to come up with all of the answers to the enigmas of life. They're time and time again outside of our grasp. Now when we put it like that, and more could be said, couldn't it, about the realities that that Ecclesiastes has brought out, that all does not sound so hopeful, does it? It's a pretty bleak picture. In fact, you could probably say it's pretty depressing to hear all of those truths. But again, I think this is kind of the point of the book. It again and again shows us these kind of realities of living here in this broken, fallen world, still under the curse of sin from Genesis chapter 3. And it reminds us that if this world, what we can see and understand under the sun, really is all that there is, Well, everything is vanity, enigmatic, absurd, we could even say. Our lives completely purposeless, completely meaningless. 
But then, having got us to feel all of that, the preacher and the book as a whole has then wanted to repeatedly lift us up out of this depression. This all is vanity, this under the sun perspective, to the glorious truth that there is another perspective out there. A perspective that even if it won't fully answer all of our specific questions in the here and now, can and will give direction to our lives. Give meaning to us. Throughout this book, the preacher has driven us to lift our eyes from ourselves, from our situations, our frustrations, our limitations, from this under-the-sun perspective to an above-the-sun perspective. A perspective that says, this isn't all that there is. Because there is one who is above the sun, a creator, God, who made us and who loves us and has put us here on this earth for a purpose, to live for him, to enjoy him, and to enjoy his many good gifts that he gives to us every single day. Ecclesiastes is classed within the wisdom literature of the Bible. And this, I think, is its overarching wisdom for us as we draw to a close. If we're going to live our lives as if this world is all there is, you're going to end up living an unsatisfied, restless life, clinging on to things that you will never be able to cling on to and chasing after things that you will never get your hands on. But if you will live with God front and center in your life, you can find satisfaction, you can find joy in the present and in the future, even amongst ongoing difficulties and challenges that we face here on earth. In many ways, um, Augustine, an African bishop from the 4th and 5th century, he went on a similar journey to the, um, the preacher that we've been looking at in Ecclesiastes. And at the end of it, he concluded similarly. This is what he said. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. In these final five verses from chapter 12 that we're going to look at this evening, all of the book is wrapped up for us as what seems to be an editor of the book draws all of the preacher's teaching together to a final conclusion that sounds very similar to that of Augustine. In doing this, the editor of the book is going to call us to do two things so that we can find purpose and meaning here on earth. First of all, he's going to call us to listen to and learn from true wisdom, like the preacher has been showing us. And then secondly, he's going to sum up all of the preacher's teaching with this final call that we read earlier, to fear God and keep his commandments. So let's get into those two things as we draw to a close here in Ecclesiastes. And first of all, as I said, the editor calls us to listen to and learn from true wisdom like we've been seeing in Ecclesiastes. Look with me at Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 9 to 10. There, this editor writes, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. This is, above all, a recommendation from the editor of the book to what's been inside it. 
In some ways, it's a bit like, you know, if you pick up a book that comes out now, it's like that little, little insert in the, in, in the front page, right? Or on the back cover of some celebrity who is endorsing the book. I'm pretty sure that most of the time they're getting a cut in it as well, aren't they? Isn't that why they're writing that? But anyway, one way or the other, the, the celebrity writes something like, this is the best book I've ever read. You must get your hand on it. It has changed my life. And the point, obviously, is to get you to read the book. Uh, and at least maybe then the author can get some of the loyalties from selling it. But here, um, the editor wants us to do exactly the same. That's what, he's, that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to get us excited and to buy into what has just been taught to us. Notice how he started, besides being wise... That's a pretty strong endorsement, isn't it? The editor is saying, here is someone who is worth listening to. In terms of wisdom, he is top of his class. But then notice, better than that, it isn't just that the preacher is wise, but then he's also sought to teach us, the people, knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The editor is saying that throughout this book that we've been looking at, the preacher has done everything he can to teach us, to pass on that wisdom that he has, carefully considering how best to do that, to get us to sit up and take notice, and choosing proverbs, right, like we've seen, that will make us stop and think, ones that will stick in our heads. Do you remember we heard, the fool folds his hand and eats his own flesh. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Controversially, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. The point of these proverbs and the book as a whole has been to teach us. And then notice after that the two things that the editor says about this teaching. First of all, that the words that we've been reading have been words of delight. And then secondly, that they've been words of truth. Both of these are important, aren't they, as we think about learning what it is to live a meaningful life. Words that only drag us down, that give us no hope or joy, well, they'd be pretty useless at giving us meaning. And even though we have often been dragged down, like we were thinking about earlier in this book, every single time you'll have noticed that we haven't just been left there in the pit. But instead, time and time again, the preacher has spoken words of delight, of joy, of even hope amongst the darkness of life. But then notice how on top of that, the editor says the preacher has written truth. This is so important, isn't it? The words of the preacher here in Ecclesiastes aren't just empty platitudes that he's made up, frivolous, carefree words that have no depth or reality to them. We can tell this, can't we, as we've been journeying with him, because he has taken the time to show us the whole of life, to slow down, not just sugarcoating life as if it's some happy fairyland experience. He's gone for the truth. And as the preacher has examined life, he's taken this long, hard stare at it. This is what he's come up with, the truths that we have read over the past few months or so. Truth itself is a fascinating thing in this day and age, isn't it? Often it's, it's looked down on. 
scoffed at even, the idea that there could be one truth. But then, of course, on the other side, it's celebrated as the be-all and end-all. Just think about all the fuss that we have about fake news. It's not true. So actually, we do care about truth. And here the editor says, this is what this book has held out for us. Truth. Something solid. Something for you to find lasting purpose and meaning in. So let me ask you here this evening, have you been and are you listening to what the book here has held for us, remembering that it is true? Are you listening to the truths that are here? If you're a Christian here tonight, have you taken the time to reflect on the truths that we've been thinking about in Ecclesiastes, to learn from them, to allow them to shape you in your day-to-day life? And if you maybe wouldn't call yourself a Christian here this evening, Maybe you've been with us for some of the series or or you haven't. But either way, this is a pretty big claim, isn't it? Here in this book are truths, words of truth that you could find purpose and meaning in. So if this is the truth, have you stopped to listen to it? To hold it up almost as a microscope to look through the world at? If you haven't, I think you'll be surprised at how much we find that it does ring true. The editor says here in this book, you've come face to face with true wisdom. It's been presented to you for a purpose, to learn from it, that you would listen to it, learn from it. And then notice how he continues with two final proverbs there in verses 11 and 12. First of all, in verse 11, this proverb that the words of the wise are like goads and like nails, firmly fixed are the collected sayings. Here we see two images of what Ecclesiastes is meant to do for us. First of all, these words are meant to sting us. The first image there in verse 11 is of a goad, which would have been this staff with some kind of sharp nail stuck into the end of it that the shepherd would have carried around with him to prod and keep his sheep on the right path. If they go to wander off, they use it to redirect them. This is what Ecclesiastes has done to us, hasn't it? It stung us in many ways. It stung us with the realities of life some of which we're pretty uncomfortable with. It stung us with our own shortcomings, our own limitations here on earth. And time and time again, the purpose has been to redirect us away from futile paths, paths that would lead to our destruction. And it's been redirecting us to find life, to go onto the path of life that is found in God alone, a life that holds hope, purpose and meaning. And then the second image is of the words of Ecclesiastes being like nails firmly fixed. And I think the the idea here is that these are words that can stabilize us. In a world of ever-shifting truth, this is what we need, isn't it? True words that are nailed down, no matter what storm comes against them. These these nails are not going to shift. They will not come loose. They will stand the test of time. We're not 
exactly sure when Ecclesiastes was written, maybe uh, at least 2,500 years ago. But as we've seen it, this is true, isn't it? Because we've seen the same truths just as relevant for us today as they were back then. And they are a rock that we can then build our lives on. A stability, something to stabilize us in the storms of life. And as this is true of Ecclesiastes, this is true of all of God's word, the Bible. And we begin to see that picture at the end of verse 11. Did you notice how the, the editor puts this on at the end? The words of the wise are given by one shepherd. And it seems almost certain here that he is pointing us to God. God described in both Psalm 23 and Psalm 80 as the shepherd. The shepherd of his people. Here, incredibly, we're told, aren't we, that these wise words of the preacher, they aren't just his alone, but they are God's. And again, that should make us stop and listen this evening. Perhaps we forget it week to week as we hold God's word in our hand, as we come to church, we hear it preached, we read it at home, we read it in our small groups. But what we have in the Bible is God speaking to us. Isn't that incredible? God speaking to us, not just through Ecclesiastes, but through the whole of the Bible. One shepherd, the words of the wise. See, wisdom isn't just, isn't just in Ecclesiastes. We find wise words from many others, or all the others who wrote the Bible. Men like Moses, David, Solomon. And ultimately, we find that, don't we, in the words of the wisest man ever to live, Jesus himself. Here's what the people in Mark chapter 6, verse 2, said about Jesus. What is this wisdom given to him? Of course, Jesus, as the ultimate wise man, and as the word of God, is also the good shepherd, isn't he? As we pick up that imagery. He is the one who calls the sheep to himself, who speaks words of delight, words of truth, holding out joy and hope in the present and the future, just as Ecclesiastes has been as well. As we see these words in verse 11, let me ask again, are you listening to and learning from the wisdom found in the Bible? Because that is what is in Ecclesiastes and right the way through from Genesis to Revelation is in here. Wise words. The words won't always be easy to hear. They will sting us just like Ecclesiastes has. They're meant to change us, to keep us on the right path. But they're also meant to stabilize us as daily we sink our hearts and our minds into it and consider it for ourselves. As we read in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. Are you allowing it to regularly sting you and to stabilize you in your life? Because as we read here, that is what it is meant to do. And as the editor then goes on to say, through this final proverb in the book, in verse 12, don't expect to find this kind of truth anywhere else. See his warning there, if you look with me. My son, that's the traditional wisdom language, passing on wisdom from one generation to another. He writes, my son... Beware of anything beyond these. 
Of making many books there is no end, and much study is weariness of the flesh. This is just so true, isn't it? Apparently there's over a million books published every single year. Imagine just trying to read some of those. That's incredible. But how few of them actually teach us truths like we've been looking at in Ecclesiastes? And none of them, even good Christian ones, do so as powerfully and helpfully as the Bible does. Profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. That we, as Christians, may be complete and equipped for every good work. The study of other books, as the, pre- as the editor writes here, ends up leaving us weary. We're wanting more, but we're not finding it. Because we find no solid truth to live our lives on, to stabilize us. And we don't find that sharp goad to help us press on, to correct us. We're bombarded, aren't we, like Steve often takes to tell us through the week, with TV, internet, Instagram, radio, let alone all of those million books. But are we stopping to take the time to look at God's word and allow it first and foremost to shape you and transform you? Or are you allowing God's word to be crowded out by these many other books or whatever shape that, that finds in our day and age? The words we find here are true wisdom. They speak comfort, joy, and hope. Let's not let them take second place in our lives behind our TVs or our phones or our friends even. And so with that in mind, we come to the conclusion the end of the matter. The wise words in Ecclesiastes summed up in this way. Here it is in verses 13 to 14, if you look with me. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. That phrase is a bit blunt, isn't it? The end of the matter. But the editor here is saying, all right, you've heard what the preacher said. Here it is in a nutshell for you to take away with you. This is what it is to live a purposeful, meaningful life as humans here on earth. To live a life where we fear God and keep his commandments. The preacher himself called us to fear God at four other points in this book. So it's not now surprising that the editor ties all of this up under that heading. And at the heart of this command is God. It is God who, as we said at the beginning, the preacher has been pointing us back to throughout. He is the one who is above the sun, who can give purpose and direction to us. Apart from God, all is vanity. You will gain nothing of value here on earth. And what you will gain will one day be ripped right out from under you. And so says the book of Ecclesiastes, don't live apart from God, but live with him front and center. As we were called last week to remember our creator, here we see that same call, but in a language that's a bit more familiar if we look at the Bible as a whole. We see uh, most famously this call in Psalm 111 and Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, where it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
as the one who is outside of time and space, who made all things, who knows the end from the beginning, just like we were singing about earlier, God is truly the one who can only give us purpose and direction and meaning. And so the call here is to fear him. That is, to run to him. Run to him as a good God who has made us and loves us, all at the same time as doing that humbly. Running bowed low, reverently remembering that he is the one who made us. He is our creator. And as verse 14 says, he is the one who will bring judgment at the end. The preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes has looked everywhere, hasn't he, for satisfaction in life, for gain. He's gone to worldly wisdom, money, possessions, women, work, pleasure, fame, whatever it is. But each and every time he has come up empty. And so here we find the summary call. This is the goad the prodding stick of Ecclesiastes. When we're tempted, as we are, we're often tempted, aren't we, to run after those things as things that we can find our meaning and purpose for in life. Ecclesiastes prods us. And it says, do not go after those things. They will destroy you and you will not find satisfaction. Instead, run to God. Fear him. As we said earlier, he is the one who made you for himself. Your heart will truly never find rest until it rests in him. Ecclesiastes says to us, God alone will satisfy. Notice how verse 13 ends. This is the whole duty of man. Literally, in the original, this is all of man. This is what it is to be a human. We've been on this search, haven't we, all the way through. Well, here it is. This is what it is to be a human, to live in relationship with God. God, in the Garden of Eden, he walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. And that was how it was meant to be. We were made to walk with the Lord, That is truly what is best for us, to walk with him in all of our ways, because in him is everything we could ever need. Listen to the satisfaction language in Psalm 36, verses 7 to 9, as we think about God alone satisfying. Psalm 36, verse 7. How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings, They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. This is the God who alone can satisfy. His fountain will never run dry. So, says the book of Ecclesiastes, run to him, fear him, and don't run anywhere else to find satisfaction and rest. Look with me again, though, at verse 13, because after the initial command to fear God, we see this second command to keep his commandments. And if we've been following through this book, maybe we're sat sat here this evening thinking, this seems a bit different. 
This is a bit out of step, maybe, with what we've seen. We've seen a few ideas of this, but not, not throughout the book. But here, I think the editor, what he's doing is helpfully explaining what this command to fear God will look like for us as we then live meaningful lives in light of that. After all, that's what this book has been searching for answers to, right? How should we live? Does what we do here have any kind of meaning? And the editor is saying, of course it does. If you're going to live with God front and center, fearing him, that is also going to give shape and meaning to every single thing that you do. Everything that you say, everything that you think even. The editor is saying, you want to live a meaningful, wise life? Fear God and keep his commandments. Live according to his commandments. See, this is the incredible thing about living for God. He doesn't just say out of the blue, live for me, and then leave us desperately hoping to find out what that will mean. No, instead, he reveals his will to us in his word. A will that not only has himself and his glory at the center, as it rightly should be, but also what is best for us. Life apart from God is vanity. It has no meaning. But living for God, as the editor says here, keeping his commandments, do you see how that can give purpose and meaning to everything? Everything that we do here and now. No longer is what we do worthless, just doing whatever we fancy, whatever's in front of us, not thinking about it. Because actually now we can have a direction to our lives. And that direction ultimately is serving and obeying God. As we'll think about in just a minute, as we close, God has poured out his love on us. If you're a Christian, he has, through his son, forgiven you and brought you to himself. And so now you and I seek to respond to that by rightly honoring him and obeying him because he is worthy of every single ounce of our lives. By giving us his commandments to obey, God has shown us that what we do have actually has value. There is right and wrong, which is what we feel, isn't it? And it's what Ecclesiastes has been pushing us to as well. It, it's okay as we look at the world around us to say, is it right that the oppressed are in tears and have no one to comfort them? Or is it right that it seems that the hearts of the children of men are full of evil? That's what the preacher's kind of saying, isn't it? Is that all right? Well, here he's, the editor is saying, no, it's not okay. That is not how it's meant to be. And do you see how that then gives purpose to every single day? We say, today, I want to live for God, and I want to keep his commandments. I don't want to waste today. We could pick up from the Ten Commandments, couldn't we? And in light of this, we could say, Today, I have a purpose. I will purposefully honor my father and mother. Today, I will purposefully speak truthfully about my colleagues at work. Today, I will purposefully be satisfied in God's good gifts that he gives us, not coveting my neighbor's wife or house or field, whatever it might be. And of course, we can then turn to commandments in the New Testament. Today, I will purposefully love my enemies and pray for those who persecute me. 
Today, I will purposefully consider how I can stir up others to love and good works. Today, I will purposefully go out and play my part in seeking to make disciples of all nations. Today, I will purposefully, as Christ sums up all of the commandments, seek to love the Lord my God with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, all my strengths. And today, I will purposefully seek to love my neighbor as myself. That is a lot of purpose for your day tomorrow. Maybe, actually, if we think about it, we'd prefer to live a life that didn't have this kind of purpose. Maybe we'd rather just sit on a sofa, put our feet up. But as we think about this, isn't this actually just such a beautiful life? This isn't a rudderless life, chasing after the wind. This is a life with direction, with meaning, a life with ambition, a life with God. A life with God and his purposes front and center. And in doing all of this, ultimately, God himself then gets the glory that he so richly deserves. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 58 ties in with all of this really well, I think. It's a verse we've considered a few times before, but it's really, really helpful. There, Paul writes, My beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That's keeping his commandments. Knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Tomorrow does not have to be vanity for you. It can and does really, really matter. So I guess the question is, how are you going to use tomorrow? But as we come towards a close now, I want us to see one final thing here. And this is what the final verse of this book adds, I think, to this command to fear God and keep his commandments. In verse 14 there, we we read it. It says, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Living, remembering God's final judgment of all things ultimately pushes us to God for two final reasons. First of all, because it reminds us that death is not the end. Ecclesiastes has kept saying that, hasn't it, again and again, but that doesn't have to be the case. Because we see here that there is a final judgment to come beyond death, when what we have done will be judged. Again, that gives purpose, doesn't it? It changes what we do in the here and now, remembering that what we do will be judged. But remembering that judgment should also make us run to God even more. Cast ourselves upon him. Because if that's the case, this is all we can do. As the preacher said earlier in the book, as we thought about, we are all sinners here this evening. And so none of us, when we come to this final judgment, will stand. Every single one of us needs to run to God because alone, he is the only one who can give us mercy, who can give us and show us grace. Mercy and grace that is ultimately offered to us in the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been told, haven't we, not to live under the sun. 
But actually, we need to live under the sun. S-O-N. Because only under him can we have any hope in this final judgment. But incredibly, if we do live under the sun, S-O-N, there are even greater things to come than this world. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, in keeping with Ecclesiastes and this search for gain, listen to these words from the Apostle Paul. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Isn't that incredible? This is how we find gain in our lives. To live for Christ right now, to live under the sun. Because then, as C.S. Lewis puts it, it is true for us that there are far better things ahead than any we'll ever leave behind. And the second reason, verse 14, is also a fitting conclusion to Ecclesiastes and drives us to God is then also this. Because it reminds us that we can live trusting in God trusting in God above the sun because we know that there will come a day when all things will be put right and the seeming vanities, enigmas, sufferings of this life will be put to an end. In Romans chapter 8, verse 21, Paul writes this, that the whole, he writes that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. Isn't that what Ecclesiastes has often shown us? that groaning, but one day that's no longer going to be the case. Creation will no longer, Paul writes, be subjected to futility, and the darkness of our present age is going to fade away. We don't know when that day will be. The editor didn't know. We don't know. It's another of the I don't knows if you've been chalking them up as we've gone through Ecclesiastes. Here's another one. We don't know when that day will be. But verse 14 reminds us that we do know it will come. There will be a day when God will bring full and final justice. Isn't that such great news as we look at the world around us? And on that day, we're also told that God himself, do you remember those oppressed? No one to wipe their tears. God himself will wipe their tears away. And on that day, there will be no more death. No more mourning, no more crying or pain, for the former things will have passed away. Isn't that the message we all need to hear? Isn't that the good news of what's to come? That is the hope that we can have as Christians. If we will take the message of Ecclesiastes to heart, if we will live for one who is above the sun, we can find forgiveness purpose and meaning in him and hope that lasts even beyond the grave. As we draw this book to a close, we might be leaving it behind here on Sunday evenings, but let's not leave its truths behind. Let's let those truths sink deep into our hearts and let's live in light of those truths every single day. Let's take the wisdom of Ecclesiastes on and live in light of it tomorrow and the next day and the day after that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for the truth that we have found in this book. 
Lord, we rejoice in the hope that we have in you. Lord, that you above the sun do give meaning and purpose to our lives. We thank you and praise you for that. Thank you for where Ecclesiastes has stung us, stung us into action, redirected us onto the path of life a path with you at the front and center. We thank you for that. And please, would it continue to do that? Would these truths be truths that just continue to shape us, that mold us? And Lord, thank you for the stability of this book as well, that pushes us to see that every other, every other ground is sinking sand, but in you, we find a rock to stand on, a rock to live our lives on, Please, with those truths, continue with us. And please, will they, they continue to give us purpose and meaning. Thankful, thank you for how you've shown that to us again this evening, that tomorrow does have meaning. Lord, please help us to fear you and tomorrow to keep your commandments. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to close now by uh, fittingly, I think, from what we've all been thinking about, declaring our hope in Christ, a hope that we have in life and in death. So again, let's uh, stand and sing together as the musicians begin to play and declare our hope in Christ.
Let's go out of there here this evening rejoicing in that hope. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.